Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. Today is another author shelf episode. They are coming fast and furious, and I absolutely love it. Today, uh, I, well, I should introduce myself. I'm Craig, your host, and I am joined today by Nadia Udin. Nadia, welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here. Me too, because you chose uh, The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin. This is the second time, actually, in our author shelf series that someone has chosen Ursula Le Guin. Um, and both of them are books that I, you, I was telling you earlier before we turned on the camera, uh, they're books that I, I know I should have read by now, but I never quite got around to it. So I'm really glad that you chose one of those books for me to, to finally cross off my list. Yeah. So. Yeah. I know you've read Dispossessive and you've also, I think as a kid, right. Or you read her Earth C series. Yeah, I read Earthsea or when I was uh, like a young adult. I think I was in my early twenties. I hated it. Read it again, loved it. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, you know, when you're in your twenties, especially when you're in your early twenties, it's easier to either really, really love something or really, really hate something. And as we get older, certainly as I've gotten older, I've kind of leveled out with my emotions a little bit. And so, <laughs> so now if I if there's something I dislike it's like ah, it, it wasn't for me you know whereas yeah. 15 20 years ago i would have been like ah, on a crusade against that thing so it's a little different yeah. um anyway so we should introduce you nadia you um have a book out now called edison in the hood um and this is okay wait where's my notes i wrote a one-liner on this uh it's about artificial intelligence and fraught family relationships Oh, perfect. Oh, my right? God. Can I just take you on tour? <laughs> it's So it's about the little stuff. It's just, you know, about the little things in life, right? Yeah, it's about the little <laughs> things in life. Um, I started it 10 years ago, but now, you know, AI is trending. So I'm like, oh, convenient. That That is good timing. 10 years. Wow. Okay. So that came out at just the right time. It did. It did. So we're, we're going to talk more about that at the end of the episode. But uh, we should talk about The Left Hand of Darkness. Um, that just to give people a quick overview, it's um, it's about our, our main character is Genli I, uh, and he's on a mission to Gethin, an icy planet that he hopes to bring into the Ecumen. It's a collection of planets or a galactic federation, if you will. <laughs> uh, but because of the nature of interstellar travel and some serious cultural and biological differences, Genli is having a tough time with that. Uh, because the people on Gethin have no fixed gender most of the time, uh, only acquiring one temporarily once a month for the purposes of sex and childbearing. Uh, what they do have, though, is a few nascent uh, city-states on these separate continents, uh, and thus an emerging sense of nationalism, we'll call it. I think she uses the word patriotism a lot mm -hmm. in the book, and I think we can talk about that quite yeah, a bit. Sure. Anyway, so he has to navigate all this stuff all while falling in love with another character and then losing that character and getting thrown in jail and um, wandering across giant ice sheets on this wintry planet. And it's, uh, it, it's well, that's basically it. Can he bring the planet into this, uh, this Federation, this ecumen? That's the goal. And he has a whole lot of conversations along the way. It's a bit like the dispossessed that way, right? It is a little bit like the dispossessed, you know. I think that like why I wanted to talk about this book so much is I, I have a conflicted relationship with Le Guin. Um, mm. I picked up Left Hand of Darkness um, when I started to write my own book. And a large part of like 
almost the reason you brought it up, like shame, right? Like she is probably one of the most canonized writers of our lifetime. She has a gazillion awards, you know, on top of it, she's a woman in this space. Um, she makes a lot of socio-political commentary in her book. So definitely picked it up. And it's a it's a dense book. It's it's hard to read um, and she forces you to slow down. So my first experience with the book was really just admiring the craft, the writing, the setting mm. work, the plot, the structure, you know, it's, it's set up as a series of journal entries, you know, almost academic papers, folk, 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 folklore, and like turns it into like this piece of fiction, you know, so definitely fascinated with all those elements. I highlighted a ton out of it. I stole a bunch when I started writing my own book. That's how um, you do it. Any, anytime somebody praises my my line level writing, I'm like, okay, well, I stole most of that from the win. Um, <laughs> but nobody needs to know that except, you know, everybody now. Uh, but um, I didn't love it though. I couldn't, you know, I was so focused on, the writing and the craft, I couldn't really get into it. And it was just hard to follow. Now, to give Lookwin credit, I actually don't enjoy books very much anymore, any type of content, because I'm always analyzing it. I'm mm, like, what's yeah. going on with characterization, that kind of stuff. The whole getting lost in a book like doesn't happen to me anymore. Um, and I think I'm always chasing it, but again, I just can't help it. I'm always breaking things down, so I can't really get lost in it. So, so you know, still felt guilty that, you know, I didn't fully appreciate the book. I was like, I have to love it. Everybody loves it. So I gave it a second read. And in that second read, I was able to, you know, get past the technical elements and, and really appreciate the macro level philosophies that she's bringing into the picture. Um, you know, understanding the plot a little more because there, mm. there are a lot of names, a lot of city states. And of course the names change. I'm like, why do authors <laughs> do that? Like, why do the names have to change? I have to really just keep notes now. Still, you know, got the plot or whatever, um, you know, with appreciating her, her, her commentary about gender and politics and, you know, finding it re relevant, but then also maybe somewhat dated as well. You know, we can talk more about the gender politics in a second, but, and then, you know, brought it to this stage, wanted to talk about it a little more, almost as a form of therapy, read it a third time and just loved it. Like, I'm like, this is the best book ever. <laughs> I, uh, I read it from front to back. I got lost in it. Um, so definitely happy to now talk about it and, and share my opinions and, and evangelize it in a way I think um, it hasn't necessarily been presented to me in other forms. Yeah. You know, it's funny you, you say that. You First of all, I mean, we we mentioned my issues with uh, with uh, Wizard of Earthsea the first time I read it, and how I loved it on the reread. Um, and then with this one, you said uh, the first time you read it, you were distracted by the uh, kind of the technical aspects, mm -hmm. and then you kind of had to come back for the other stuff. For me, it was completely the opposite. I actually I did have a tough time with this book, maybe in a similar uh, to a similar degree, I guess I should say, uh, to what you were describing, but in the opposite way where I wanted uh, like with the, the dispossessed, one of my favorite paragraphs I think I've ever read in a book for this show was in the dispossessed. Um, it's not necessarily my favorite book we've ever read, but it, it was some amazing writing. And I was kind of blown away by what she was able to do on that line level, that paragraph level. Um, but I was distracted in this book by 
the content, by the politics, by mm-hmm. the commentary, by the stuff that I like my brain latched onto, where now I feel like I'm going to have to reread this trying to now that I know what she's saying and kind of what her views are in this book, going back to it and saying, OK, so let's get to the technical stuff. You know, I need to actually read the lines a little more slowly and uh, and appreciate her art um, and and not just that commentary side of it. So, yeah, you and I had uh, had a little bit different uh, different approaches on this one. That's fun. Yeah, different approaches. But at the end of the day, I think we, we ended up in the same spot. <laughs> really just understanding why this book is so, you know, why its virtues are extolled so much and Man. and and why it's it's gonna be timeless. It is timeless. Unless, you know, civilization civilization ends and then we have to start over. <laughs> Actually, I that's it's interesting you use that word timeless because I was thinking about that very thing. This book was published fifty three years ago. So it was nineteen sixty, I think. On yeah, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, it came out when like Or was it sixty nine? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, my my mistake. Yeah, I was going to say 1970, but 1969. So it's been around for 53 years. Now, if you gave somebody a high level overview, hey, what's what's the book about? Uh, it's a guy who travels travels around to these different countries and he's trying to bring them into this federation, this ecumen, which is a word we should talk about. Um, and uh, he has a, a, a lot of conversations about gender and mm-hmm. like gender politics and uh, nationalism and patriotism and all that stuff, because that was what was in the air in at the time she was writing this book. That stuff was all over the place. The the kind of second wave radical feminists mm-hmm. of the 60s uh, and the issues around the Cold War and the, the kind of nationalist politics and whatnot that that brought up. And here we are 50 years later. And I, I, I heard somebody observe once that in a market style economy, um, for whatever reason, macroeconomics tend to operate on about a 50 year timeline and it cycles between different uh, aspects of that market economy. And I'm wondering now if that holds true for social issues as well, because yeah, 50 years ago, this was exactly what we were talking about. And then I went, okay, 50 years before that, it was kind of the the tail end of the progressive era and the Wilson administration and the exact same stuff. Well, okay, no, not the exact same stuff, but the same style of thing where uh, it was about, you know, we had women's suffrage and, uh, you know, obviously the progressives were highly nationalistic uh, at that time. And, you know, it was a whole thing. You go 50 years further back than that. And yeah, anyway, so you can do yeah. it over and over again. So timeless. Yeah. And I wonder if, 50 years from now, people are going to be in a situation where they're going to pick up the left hand of darkness and go, did she just write this? Yeah. <laughs> kind of it's like I was like, thinking. It's either timeless or nothing has changed. Like, it's like whatever perspective <laughs> you want to take on that one, you know. Um, it does seem like, you know, history does just keep repeating itself, repeating itself. And, you know, everyone says it's profound because, you know, the thought experiment of this book is what if people had no gender or Mm -hmm. what if during that procreation period or when they're in heat, like you don't know who's what, there is a male and female situation, but you don't know who the male or the female Mm -hmm. is. Like you don't know what you're going to be. So, and then the rest of the time you're kind of like androgynous. So, you know, kind of in what we would say the they, them world of today, Um, you know, she, definitely isn't the first person who's who's talked about you know gender and androgyny and you know transgender individuals have have been around long before so 
the conversation was happening before, it's happening during her time, and it's happening now as well. But I don't know if I necessarily see it as androgyny. I don't feel like she she's talking about androgyny. You know, in a way, when I read it the third time, I was like, oh, wow, this is a love letter to like Taoism and those philosophies of like yin and yang and, and light and darkness. There's a lot of duality and, and the, we become one in that duality. Like that's kind of like the heart of, of Taoism and what mm-hmm. she has talked about and written about, you know, extensively. But I actually think it was more about asexuality in terms of like when you weren't in this the characters when they weren't in this camera stage. So camera is like, I guess when they're, you know, in heat or, you know, that's when appropriation happens where they, the gender becomes fluid, but the rest of the time they're not cameraing. They're just, they're asexual. And the characters in her book are primarily male. Like, did you get the sense that like they were all male? Um, she had written like some feminists kind of challenged her and they're like, why did you make everything mankind, he, him? Like, why didn't you use they, them? Or why weren't there any like female looking characters or sounding Mm. characters? And, you know, she has written that it was maybe a little bit of a miss, but she was also, she just felt like it would be confusing to people if there was a they, them, you know? And maybe that's what's changed is, you know, in the 60s, 70s maybe they them would have been very very you know confusing and huh and and now people state those pronouns i still think it's confusing i mean unless you're in a bubble a liberal bubble (laughs) you know they them you're like okay whatever be whatever pronoun you want i don't need subject verb agreement go for it but you know outside that bubble people people still are very confused and and it, it does unearth a lot of ire when you when you were telling people to change up their pronouns yeah it's and she I think, first of all, I'm in total agreement. Yes, <laughs> outside of the bubble, it, it can get confusing. And it, honestly, just even if you are in the bubble, sometimes grammatically, it's like, okay, wait, I, I need to slow down. And so it right. does stop you in your tracks sometimes. Uh, but that's all fine. But back in the 60s, they, the feminists back then were already experimenting mm-hmm. the way that people are now with alternate pronouns and whatnot. Like, this is not new, as you say, you know, maybe just nothing's changed. <laughs> so... Uh, so yeah, that was all, that was all going on. Um, gosh, there was something else you said that I wanted to respond to, but, uh, but now it's asexuality. Oh yeah. It's something about that. Um, oh, oh, the, the thought experiment being, uh, you know, what if, what if people were more or less stripped of their gender for most of their lives? Um, and I, it felt like it was, you can talk about it from a kind of grand political perspective, you know, how would society operate and, you know, what, what would the different mores be around uh, sex and sexuality and all that stuff. And that's all fine. But on a personal level, um, on a, like on an interpersonal level, um, how do you, how do you connect with those you meet? Mm-hmm. Is there, a way, and and this is, I'm trying to put on my Le Guin hat here and say the thought experiment in a way is about how do you, how can you connect with somebody in a way that is beyond uh, the sexual? And I I don't just mean the sexual and uh, whatever. It's when we're talking about gender roles and uh, self-identifiers and Mm -hmm. uh, and other identifiers, um, is there something deeper? Is there a way to connect to somebody on a, an a purely human level without that stuff. And I'm not sure that it is totally possible, but it's an interesting concept for a book. So, yeah. 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 I think she even like 
struggles with it a little bit because she, she a lot of the first of all, Jenry, the the envoy, right? Who's really mm-hmm. his mission is to come just coordinate all these these planets into like trade and knowledge sharing sort of institutions. No power, no class. She loves to talk about that. Every book, Earthsea series, Dispossessed, it's all about that. What if what if yeah. class what if class didn't exist or power or social or whatever? But um, but he essentially he's bad at his job and he's. He's a misogynist. Like he, he doesn't like feminine things. He's he kind of is, uh, you know, speaks of women's qualities in a pejorative way. Like, oh, he had a shrill feminine voice, and you know, he couldn't think abstractly because he was a woman. So you know, mm. maybe that is that is why he, in the he really wasn't able to do what he could do. I mean, I don't mean to do any spoiler alerts, but you know, it's it's the end of the day. Hey, you know, fifty three year old book, let yeah. her rip. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's there's. Honestly, I there aren't even like these major plot twists, right? Plus, he doesn't get <laughs> the job done. He ends up leaning on this Estrovan guy, who I feel like is the ideal figure in the Le Guin mind of, of how a human should be, right? He cares yeah. about the whole. He doesn't have this power struggle, but yeah, I think the the at the crux of it, she's also just she writes a lot about I think cultural evolution versus biological evolution like you know race class gender these are all things that we've made up uh, as part of our cultural evolution you know versus biological evolution so the people on the planet that he visits are a form of like they they develop this asexuality or this androgyny as a form of like um evolution adaptation i think they were Mm. brought from another planet and so that's why they're they have this androgynous being they're still human but they're different because they are like that. And, and Jenry, poor Jenry, the envoy is considered this pervert because he's, as she describes, always a low grade Kemmering. Like he's just like always <laughs> aroused, I get not heavily aroused, like in a full camera, but, but somewhat aroused. So I need to, by the way, adopt this is such perfect language. You, you need a little euphemism for, yeah. Oh, I'm in full camera, baby. Right. We're in full camera. We are PG 13. You have no idea what I'm talking about because <laughs> you haven't read this book. Um, but you know she also struggles with that because you know in these conversations they're like yeah can you just look at me as a human being without gender but then she's like but women can get pregnant you know and it's like women have their periods you know so it's just like there is that truth that uh, evolutionary biological aspect of us that we can't get around you know even like somebody addressed oh but men are more physical and she's like oh with the machines what does it matter it's true but but at the end of the day, you can get pregnant, which is, I think, why it's so important right. that she wanted this duality, this male-female form to happen during, like, a procreation moment. And, and I don't know if Kemmering, in her mind, was just about reproduction, because I think it was also, like, you can enjoy it. I think they were, like, contraceptives also at that time. But but having that sexual lust within a very contained period, um, I think for her was, like, that's where the thought experiment was. And then what happened outside of that as well. But yeah. But yeah, definitely very similar themes throughout all her books. I, by the way, I remembered what it was that I was going to respond to, but uh, no, it was about the the whole pronoun thing. She mm-hmm. she starts the book almost. I, it might be like chapter three or four, but she starts the book with a discussion about why she's always using he him pronouns and what that does and how that it does kind of uh, slightly bend your mind toward mm-hmm. the masculine as a default. And, and anyway, that's, that's all. Um, but as you say, what are you going to do? You bump up against reality. As you say, 
you know, uh, yeah, you're going to, but you're going to have your period, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. there, there are certain, certain realities that, uh, that she kind of acknowledges in this book in, in a way, uh, I, I have to write it this way, but by writing it this way, I am going to influence the way you think about these kind of androgynous people that you're running up against in the book. You are going to think about them as male. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's tough. I, yeah. It's, it's a tough tightrope to walk. Yeah, she and you know she was born in 1929, so her approach also is dated in the sense that for her it was very normal to say mankind meant humankind, and he was mm -hmm. the universal pronoun. You know, she writes about that as well, so it just it felt natural to her, I think, um, and it was a safe assumption that you know using man instead of human um, was you know normal and, and not that discouraging. But yeah, it still ended up bending things towards the male side for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other big topic in the book, uh, there's the gender politics, but then there's also the question of nationalism and patriotism. Uh, this is, oh, and, uh, well, I guess we can kind of introduce this by mentioning what I mentioned earlier, the word ecumen. That's mm -hmm. the, the, what do I call it? The galactic federation right, of planets, right? right? They the call it the ecumen. State. Which, of course, is going to call to mind the word ecumenical, which is um, like a representing a body of churches, right? It's uh, commonly used in Christianity. Like if you're going to have an ecumenical, e e ecumenical conference, it's a bunch of people coming together and, uh, you know, trying to universalize something, right? So, uh, well, but in this case... You told me on that. I had no idea. I thought it was like maybe a, a playoff acumen, but, um, but yeah. Oh, right. I used yeah, to miss a lot of religious references too because I didn't grow up Christian. So I'm like, I'm thank you for 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 educating. I me I tip my uh, decorative religious hat uh, and say, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I definitely grew up in a heavily religious uh, family and area and tradition. So yeah, a lot of this stuff is uh, yeah, it's kind of the the water that this fish swims in. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so that's. Uh, she spends a lot of the book talking about gender issues, but a lot of the book kind of preaching um, a globalist attitude through mm -hmm. these characters and, and through the conversations that they have. And even with the word the ecumen and the way she talks about this kind of uh, utopian individual societies that have coalesced into a utopian uh, overall uh, federation. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that that's where the book was. Is it interesting? Are they interesting questions? Yes. But I felt like she was on less firm footing here. Um, when it came to the gender stuff, I, I, you know, might agree or disagree with that, this or that or the other, but she was asking interesting questions in an interesting way. And, uh, and I enjoyed reading about that when it came to the the uh, kind of grand political themes of this, I was like, eh, you know, I, I had a hard time with it. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah. what about you? Yeah. I mean, I, one of my favorite lines is just like, are we a nation? Or are we just a bunch of quarreling families? And I'm like, yeah, mm. I, I feel like that's kind of where we are too, you know, especially like places in the Middle East, where, like everybody needs to stop quarreling, you know, <laughs> not to like make that too reductive. But, um, but, you know, I think another reason why, I wanted to talk about this book is, you know, with COVID and what happened in 2020, I think mm. we became hyper aware of like what globalization meant and how we were so connected. You know, we're not sort of these isolated nations by, you know, 
from a biological standpoint, you know, viruses want to replicate and they don't care. They'll come over the ocean, you know, whatever it may be. So, so it felt like, yeah, it was kind of like a, it was maybe the discussions were a little superficial, right? And it was hard to really see if she had a, a good stance as to how things should be, right? So these coordinate planets and they share knowledge and there's no power, there are no laws, everything is just coordinated, 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 you know? Yep. I couldn't really, she didn't really go into like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, the, the planet. Or how did go- they achieve this? Right, 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 right. Yeah. But, you know, when she go when, you know, when, uh, our, our envoy goes to Gethin. Is that the name of the The planet? first yeah. place? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, it's very different. There's a king and there's, you know, structures, class structures, and they're like, you know, pieces of land that they're they're fighting over. Um, so it's just like, is that, are, are they the enlightened society or, you know, are these, you know, intergalactic connections the ideal state? There really wasn't a, a stance, I don't think. It was, Unlike, I, I, I felt like, like dispossessed. It was clear, right? There's like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, yeah, that's the whole point of the dispossessed, I guess. In this case, I felt like as I was reading it, what she was saying is, uh, I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a character from an idealized future and I'm going to put him in our past not too far, you know, several hundred years into our past. Well, okay, you know, maybe a a millennium or so. The city-state is just starting to kind of emerge as uh, a political entity. And so then you have, um, you have wars of nationalism, you know, instead of whatever people were fighting out about before. Um, And what she was saying, I felt like was, here's a society that could go differently than ours did if they made different choices. And she wanted them to leapfrog uh, by joining the ecumen. Mm -hmm. She wanted them to leapfrog the, the tumultuous uh, modernization that we went through as, you know, the various societies across the earth. Right. Um, Something along those lines. Uh, but like you said, it's uh, you use the word superficial, and I think that's a fair word. I, I don't, I don't mean to. I mean, hey, it's Ursula Le Guin, like you said. It's uh, <laughs> um, disparage at your own peril, right? <laughs> but it does feel when I read her politics a little bit like um, John Lennon politics. Yeah. Like imagine there's no countries. Imagine. Like okay, <laughs> all right, thanks, John. Yes. Have a nice day. Right. You had a dream. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I, I did have a, a tougher time with that because her definitions, I think, are imperfect with these political concepts. So she talks about patriotism a lot. And there's an interesting question there. Um, oh, let's see if I can find the, the quote. I've got the quote here somewhere. Um, oh, oh, uh, Estrovan asks him if he knows what patriotism is. And Genley responds, I don't think I do. If by patriotism, you don't mean the love of one's homeland. Um, And then Estrovan replies, I don't mean love when I say patriotism. I mean fear, the fear of the other. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that that is an operative way that some people do think about the world. I get that. Um, This is kind of a a book in some measure about xenophobia, and that's all totally fair. But it's, 
if you want to talk about nationalism as that sort of thing, that's fair. But I kind of separate nationalism and patriotism in my mind where um, it, like, get, Estrovan later says, uh, what is love of one's country? Is it hate of one's uncountry? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, I don't think that's a fair starting point if you're going to talk about patriotism. Um, and so it's a, an interesting question and an interesting direction to go. I just felt like her, like I said earlier, her foundation, her, her feet weren't under her quite as firmly as with the other issues in the book. So Yeah, yeah. She definitely had stronger opinions, I think, of, of other issues. And, and um, you know, even with, with patriotism, you know, lately it feels like it's a pejorative word just because it's like, Patriots storm the Capitol, right? Bit, like, yeah, it's oh, been a bit I politicized. Don't, I don't like patriots now, whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it's hard to really say like, okay, well, do I come out with a, a stronger opinion or do you feel more enlightened now based on these discussions, mm-hmm. how she approached it? Not really, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's all fair enough. So what else do we, do you have any, Favorite lines, any uh, anything specific to the craft of this book? Uh, favorite moments, favorite lines that you wanted to bring up? Uh, we've talked a lot about the conceptual side, you know, the, the stuff that I had the harder time with. But what about the stuff that you were so in love with that you were distracted by your first time through? You know, I think that, like, I love, again, how she brings in kind of, in a way, so there's the, the Chinese author, I want to... I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correctly, Tao Zhi. Um, and she's written a lot We do the best we can. Him. Yes, yes. And <laughs> he's written a ton about him. She actually did like a translation of his work. She doesn't know Chinese, but she like cobbled pieces together or whatever. So she really, you know, takes his work to the point of um, appropriation. Um, mm. It's it's like, it's basically, um, you know, lines like, uh happiness has to do reason and only reason earns it. And, you know, words, words like that in terms of like um, things that are contradictive and, and, you know, in all time past is in all time to come. It is, it has not been, nor yet will it be. It is all like lines like that. Where <laughs> um, I, I highlighted them. I liked them. It felt philosophical, but it also, I feel is just, again, pure appropriation of, 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 you know, that writing as well. And again, she doesn't mm. hide the fact that she's a fan of that, but, um, but I definitely liked it when it got, got into those spaces. Um, and just, you know, every now and then there'll just be moments that are funny between these characters. And, um, you know, again, I got to like the characters a little bit more once I read it for the third time. So, um, you know, overall, I think the book, came together for me in the third reading where the beauty of the writing and the structure, you know, actually felt married very well with, you know, the Mm. the actual storyline and the plot. And, you know, um, I felt like there is a propulsion like with it, you know, because it is at the end of the day, this guy's journey, right? He's trying to get from point A to point B. And, um, you know, there, there is sort of that, like, you kind of wonder, you know, that helps you reading. You're like, so is this guy going to succeed or not? Are we getting into this coordinated planet state or what? Um, and then she has such a dedication to, I think, the truthfulness of, of the book. Like, you know, 
a large part of the second half is them in this journey going to, you know, through the lands of trying to escape and it's pages and pages of them trucking through this ice and glaciers. And she had studied, um, you know, people who had taken these treks on Antarctica, but she wanted it to be, you know, realistic, but we're like, who would, who would know that if it was realistic or not, you know, but it was just such a dedication to that, which, which I appreciate. And, and she is definitely, I'm almost jealous as, as how indulgent she can be, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, there are some parts where it just reads like, you know, her academic paper on anthropology or, um, you know, there's this whole section towards the back. Like, I think when you get to the 95th percent mark, you know, you could almost put it down because she's getting in the specifics of here's the cycle of the land and here's what they mm. consider an hour. And here's this. And it's just like all this stuff. You're like, OK, go, Ursula, write it down. I need to write <laughs> it down. But, you know, go with it. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's interesting to read that level of, um, I mean, today we call it world building, I, I, yeah. whatever they would have called it back then, um, that level of world building in a pretty short book. Um, as yeah. you say, this is this is thick in its language and its concepts and all that, but it's not that long a book. Uh, but she spends a lot of time building that world out for you. And as I was reading that, as I was reading this one, of course, I'm going to compare it to the other Le Guin books that I've read and the ones that we've talked about. Um, she's always uh, very straightforward with her language. She doesn't take a lot of rhetorical detours. Um, but in this book, compared to The Dispossessed, um, compared to Earthsea, the language felt colder and mm -hmm. less personal. And I, I was thinking about this as I was reading the book, and I wondered if, and maybe, you know, as a, a writer yourself, maybe you can shed some light on this. Is that, what's the chicken and what's the egg? So she comes up with the setting and says, okay, it's going to be this ice planet. Uh, the nickname is going to be winter. It's so icy. Yes, you're just cold as um, you read it. You're cold. You're like, this exactly. Is yeah, exactly. And, and so she comes up with this setting. This is where I'm going to put my book. She starts writing it. Does she... Uh, does she consciously put in language? No, I, I don't just mean like the word cold or frozen or whatever, but something about her approach to the characters and their distance from her as an author and you as a reader, it, it all feels cold and distant compared to her other books. Is that conscious or by choosing that setting, does she, you know, I know what the analogy would be like bundling up, like separating herself and, mm -hmm. uh, and writing that way. I, I'm, curious is that accidental or is that purposeful it's yeah, hard to hard to imagine anything with Le Guin not being purposeful right 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 you're like she made every decision nothing is accidental um you know I think that like I think the academic in her really came out in this book and that's mm. what I mean it's like indulgent right because it's like she does <laughs> yeah. her, her lineage she comes from professors PhDs and sometimes you know you want to write like that so she set up this book where it's like a series of papers like She's the reader is basically discovering like, you know, this 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 uh, quest to to, again, have this planet join this this other coordinated group of, of planets. So, yeah, you'll be reading a first person like journal account and then there'll be some folklore in there and then they'll actually be transcripts. Right. So if it's a transcript, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's not that you know personal as well. And so I do think that she wanted to to 
maybe get to the point a little bit more or wanted to be more academic in her writing. Um, mm. It's still beautiful prose, but it's, that's why it's so hard, you know, because you are, it's like, it's almost like you're reading, um, you know, a, a white paper on, uh, <laughs> on her observations of, of, you know, gender neutrality and, and that sort of stuff. So, um, and that's why I mean, it's in, indulgent because I know with my book too, like I like to have these sections that are very like, you know, there's conversational and that kind of stuff. And I don't feel like making it dialogue-y. You know, I don't feel like making it realistic. I almost want these like highly intellectual conversations to be happening. And yeah. either you like it or you don't. It's same with dispossess. Either you're going to go with it. You're not going to be like, obviously people don't talk like this when, you know, they're at the gym or at the bar, you know, but, but, uh, but uh, I think that she definitely like went full, full, full full forward in terms of just being able to write in that manner. <clears throat> when I talked about The Dispossessed with Mary Robinette Kowal, and people should go listen to that. That was a fun episode. That um, was a good one. Uh, I made the observation and I know a lot of people hated it and I know why they hated it, but I'm going to make it again. <laughs> that reading these two books uh, by Le Guin reminded me forcibly of reading um, uh, Robert Heinlein. Uh, we did Starship Troopers years ago on the podcast. Uh, now it doesn't remind me of that because they share the same politics. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, but, but because Robert Heinlein does a similar thing to what you're talking about, where he's like, you know what? I know. Yeah. People don't talk this way. I don't care. I've got something to say and I'm not publishing in academic journals. I'm publishing fiction. So it's going in my story. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so you'll have chapters long breaks from the action so that two characters can talk about the nature of patriotism. Um, and so it, <laughs> so for all of you people who hate Heinlein out there or love, uh, you know, don't want them compared. Sorry. That's all I mean is that they, they love to get their ideas in there that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I almost feel like just establish your expectations. You're going to enjoy the book a lot more if you just know that, you know, you're going to get, the type of writing that is completely unrealistic in terms of how people actually speak. Right. Well, that being said, actually, let's um, let's move on to some final thoughts here. The question I'll ask Already? you. Already? Your... Oh, my God. No. I know. I know. It's been 40 minutes. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> the question I want to ask you is a, a one I ask almost everybody, which is, how do you and to whom do you recommend this book? <sighs> Oh, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, it's so recommended, right? It's like on every list ever. Right. Books to read, sci-fi, that kind of stuff. Um, I would definitely recommend it to any person who needs to study, like, the craft, how to master it, um, the elements of it. It's almost like, you know, taking a, a course that you would maybe have to go through an MFA to get, you know, in terms of, like, if you want to just learn how to do it really well. Um, but in terms of like, who else would really be into it? I, I, that's actually a pretty tough question, right? Like if you're, if you're into fantasy, if you're into sci-fi speculative, I don't know. Who would you recommend it to? I'm actually yeah. curious. Uh, it, it's, uh, as you say, if somebody wants to study the craft, uh, you know, <laughs> reading as much Le Guin as you can is never a bad idea. Right. Um, 
somebody who is interested by the questions we've been talking about, the uh, questions of patriotism, questions of uh, gender roles or gender identities and all that stuff. Um, it, as you say, you can tell it was written 50 years ago. Not every idea is exactly current, but it still is going to ping some of those same uh, centers in your brain. And so, so somebody who's interested in those topics, uh, but then also anybody who's interested in um, kind of a, a survey of the historical landscape of science fiction. This was, I mean, it won the Hugo, it won the Nebula. So many. Um, it won everything else <laughs> that year, as far as I can tell. Um, and, and, and it has been an influential work for 53 years now. So, uh, so your favorite writer has read this book. And yeah. it has probably influenced them in some way, right? Definitely, um, definitely. And so even if it's just for uh, the educational aspect of, uh, I don't know, that it feels unfair. And this isn't the only reason I recommend the book, but I guess I I would say it is valuable to, to have read it, um, even if it isn't your favorite book to read on your yeah. first time through. But like... Yeah. Like I also other think Le Guin, that, it's yeah. uh, it's going to be rereadable. It's uh, that reread is necessary, right? The reread is necessary, and it could be only three hundred pages, and you're like, I can get through this in a weekend. No, it's going to take a few weeks. Yeah. yeah, I think it's also good for somebody who like maybe likes to be a little confused or not necessarily necessarily know what they're mm. reading. Like, I'm a big fan of like Murakami. I like Richard Powers. You know, like these are very dense books that like. You kind of like, I have no idea what I just read, but I feel something, you know, I, I, yeah. I'm getting an emotion out of it. So I think if you're really into to having that kind of reading experience as well, I, I would recommend this for sure. For sure. That's uh, well, in a very different genre. <laughs> That's how I often describe having read The Silmarillion for the first time. So, you know, Tolkien's big mythology and I was 17 and I read 300 pages of this thing. I had no idea what was going on, but I knew I loved it. Yes. And so I immediately reread it and started to get it. You know, yeah. uh, sometimes all you need is to feel something out of a book. You don't, yeah. you don't have to come to a conclusion about all the the various things we talked about today. Yeah, that's all you want to do as a writer. You just you want somebody to feel, you know, so. Yeah, well, there you go. There well, you go. an excellent pick, Nadia. Um, I'm you. so glad that, that I've, I can cross this one off my TBR <laughs> list and, and put it on my TBRR list yeah. uh, for later. But uh, let's talk about your book, Edison in the Hood. Now, my my line, what, what was it? It's about artificial intelligence and fraught family relationships. <laughs> Do you want to give us more of a pitch and let us know what this book is about? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it follows the story of a brother and sister. At the heart of it is a family and, you know, a lot of conflict, very strained. I think a lot of people can, can relate to that. And um, they receive a technology from like a Ray Kurzweil type character, actually, the, my whole character is based on Ray Kurzweil, if you're a fan, but um, okay. uh, a technology that would use artificial intelligence to help mend their relationships. And so as they kind of um, grapple with the morality of, of such technology and a subversive radical group, you got to have the anarchy, you know, get wind of this technology and have a very so, different, different says vision. The, says the Le Guin fan, the Le Guin fans. Are, yeah, yeah, you got to have some anarchists in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have a different vision <laughs> of it. So yeah, can artificial intelligence fix our most challenging relationships? That's my thought experiment. 
And that's so interesting. And as you say, timely, because it's a bit like we're all looking at artificial intelligence right now, <laughs> but we're looking at what our right hand is doing with it while our left hand yeah. is still kind of mysterious. What so we think about how is it going to affect the economy? Will will I still like will truck drivers still have a job when artificial intelligence really uh, comes into play? You know, or or what have you? But we don't think necessarily about um, how is Jet how is Chat GPT going to affect my family relationships? And yeah, and you know the the uh, line there might be a little. Um, more tenuous or, or difficult to discern, but that doesn't mean it's not there. And, you know, these things will have an effect and they're going to look a lot different than they do now. Um, you know, who knows? I mean, artificial yeah. intelligence, I, I was, I was uh, one of the first of my friends to have an email address back in 1993. Um, and like, so you say the internet, this thing where you can send whatever yes. instantaneously across the world. And then you describe the internet now to somebody in 93 and it's uh, it's a whole different beast and so who knows what ai is going to look like in 20 years it's going to be no wild. yeah and it's it's rapidly like it's just compounding the acceleration you know my my book takes place in the year 2030 and a lot of people are like i feel like this technology is way too advanced i don't think this is going to happen in 2030 and i'm like mm -hmm. yeah just you wait it's just you know what you think is happening now is going to happen at a rate 10 times more. So, <laughs> well, I will, uh, let me give my own pitch for why people might want to pick up this book. The longtime listeners of the show have heard my wife, Sarah, she's been on the show a few times. Uh, so they're familiar with how much better and smarter she is than me. That's fine. Um, but your book, uh, I think your agent, your publicist, maybe you, I don't know. Somebody sent me a copy of the book of Edison in the hood and it shows up and I, I read the back of it and I go, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And I read the first chapter and I went, Sarah, I think you'd like this a lot. Um, for And again, for those who have listened to the show uh, for a long time, they know that Sarah and I do not have the same uh, tastes all, uh, often when it comes to uh, what we read. But I said, I think you would really like this. And I haven't so seen it So you're like since. basically like, it's so, not for me, but it's for you? No, no, no. What I'm saying is I'm liking this and I think you'll like this. Uh, I, I got through the first chapter and went, ooh, this this might be up your alley. Maybe this is something we can share. And I haven't seen it since. It's uh, She's been reading it herself. So. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> Tell her to post a review for me on Goodreads. Oh yeah, absolutely. So anyway, uh, yeah, that was poorly phrased, but no, that's uh, I, what I meant was something we can both enjoy. So. Oh my God, that's, a, just, some that's wide the appeal. nicest thing. That's the nicest thing. Thank you. You're making my heart sing. <laughs> Well, there you go. Nadia Odin, thank you so much for coming on the show and for picking a book uh, that I'm sure will get our Discord server lighting up with a lot of people talking. Uh, much appreciated. Yes, yes, yes. Um, thank you for having me and using this as an excuse me to read it, you know, for the third time. So happy <laughs> to talk about it. Check it off the list. We've done the essentials in terms of reading and uh, can appreciate her for, for who she is now. <laughs> there you go. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thelegendarium.com is where you can go and find past episodes grouped by either by author or in this case by the author's shelf. So we've done, gosh, uh, at least a couple dozen of these at this point. Um, the author's shelf episodes are some of my favorite 
that we've ever done. So you can find all of those at thelegendarium.com. You can also find links to Discord to join in the conversation and yell about me about my views on Joe Abercrombie's books uh, or whatever you want. Um, and you can also find the link to our Patreon page. Uh, and for those of you who support the show already, thank you so much. Um, and for those of you who don't yet, I, it would mean a lot to us if you throw a buck in the tip jar uh, for these episodes that we make for you. And uh, with that, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you again, Nadia, for coming on. And I will see everybody next time. Thanks. Thanks.